This is Jeff Standridge, and this is the Innovation Junkies Podcast. If you want to drastically improve your business, learn proven growth strategies, and generate sustained results for your organization, you've come to the right place. Over the next half hour, we're going to be sharing specific strategies, tactics, and tips that you can use to grow your business, no matter the size, no matter the industry, no matter the geography. We'll be talking about everything from sales and marketing to organizational, operational, and leadership effectiveness to innovation, digital transformation, everything in between. Routinely, we'll bring in a top mover and shaker, someone who's done something unbelievable with his or her business. We'll dig deep. We'll uncover specific strategies, tactics, and tools that they've used to help you achieve your business goals. Welcome to the Innovation Junkies Podcast. Hey guys, if you're looking to put your business on the fast track to achieving sustained strategic growth, this episode is sponsored by the team at Innovation Junkie. To learn more about our strategic growth diagnostic, go to innovationjunkie.com diagnostic. Now let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to the Innovation Junkies podcast. I'm Jeff Standridge. And this is Jeff Amarine, back for another episode. Back for another episode indeed, and we are so glad to have with us G. Dennis today. G. has been in the healthcare industry for over 15 years, both as an executive and as an entrepreneur and innovator. Uh, in 2018, she founded G2G Healthcare Solutions, uh, has clients that include health systems, venture capital funds, and healthcare services companies. Uh, she served as the Vice President of Operations, Strategy, and Innovation at Baptist Health Systems of Arkansas, where I had the opportunity uh, and the pleasure to, to meet G and, and do some work with her. Uh, she's also co-founded and operated a successful healthcare educational content company. G, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Jeffs. Jeffs, Plural. that's right. You Plural. only have to remember one name with us, right? That makes <laughs> exactly. it easy. Well, the only difference is ours are both spelled with two Fs, but in mine, the second F's silent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. The humor so, doesn't get any better than that, just so that yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, G, we like to start off these podcasts with a little bit of a random musing, and uh, we never know what it's going to be till we get together and kind of decide beforehand. So today... Okay. The random musing is what random musing is. What's the worst thing you ever did as a as a kid, either you know, high school and below, elementary, high school, or what have you? And by the way, that we all admit, share that you did that you'd admit to publicly. That's or, yeah, that, that the statute of limitations has run out on. <laughs> I had to ask uh, clarification on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one that comes to mind um, is. You guys may, yeah, you're old enough to remember this. Before Chuck E. Cheese, there was Showbiz Pizza. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, so I, was, I think I was eight. And, uh, you know, me and my cousins were having a party there. And in the balls, uh, we thought we were, you know, the ball section where you yeah, jump yeah. in the balls. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were doing our backflips and our thing in there. And these other kids were coming in and we were like, no, this is, this is our time, our space. Anyway, so these other kids did not respect that we thought we had like at least 10 minutes of we were practicing our gymnastic moves and whatever, because I actually, uh, you know, didn't grow up in an environment where, you know, I could do gymnastics. So I was trying all kinds of stuff that you couldn't do mm -hmm. safely or else. Right. You're trying. So anyway, we were doing all of these things and the we got kicked. Ultimately, we got kicked out of showbiz pizza. Oh, I mean, at eight years old, it's like, 
You my make my me feel... mom still remembers it to this day. She's like, how do you get kicked out of showbiz pizza? <laughs> now you really make me feel like a criminal. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, your turn. All right. I mean, I was. It's it's kind of a long list. I'm trying to decide if it's some of the stuff that we did on Halloween, where we always mm. felt like that was kind of a clandestine operation. Uh-huh. Maybe some of that will stay classified. But w- the worst thing I ever did in terms of really bad was I was scratching out, as we used to say in the old days, from a parking lot in reverse in my dad's pickup truck, and managed to impact a tree in reverse at about 40 miles an hour. <laughs> Ooh. We survived. No problem. Nobody hurt. Thankfully, we hit the tree or else we would have been flying off the back of a mountain. But if you remember the scene from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, mm-hmm. yeah. where Spicoli wrecked the uh, the Camaro of the football yeah. player. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and he and uh, he, he comes up to the football player and he says, dude, don't worry about it. My brother's got an awesome set of tools. So my first thing to ask for, for my friends who were still in the area, is anybody got a hammer? Maybe I can pound it out. <laughs> now, the remarkable thing, and it, the remarkable thing is, and it's a testament to Toyota engineering, is I was able to drive this thing home, even though the back end of that little Toyota truck had a big V in it. And the next conversation with my dad, who was former military, was one of those classic things I'll never forget. Rest in peace. My dad was an awesome guy. But I walked in very meekly, and I said, Pop, I, I, I backed the truck into a tree. And so he's walking out. This is maybe, you know, 11 or 12 at night. He's walking out thinking it's going to be a little dad. <laughs> and, and he says he says to me when he sees it, son of a, fill in the blank, it's totaled. It's totaled. And I thought, my life is over at this point. Oh. This is a 16-year-old. I've been driving, you know, less than a year. And I thought, it's finished, you know. Nobody got hurt, thankfully, even though it looked like one of those scenes out of Fast and Furious. I can still remember the slow motion of all the stuff coming off the dash and out of the anyway, that was that was probably the worst thing I ever did. Well, I'm feeling really good about my showbiz pizzas. Well, you're going to feel really good when I get finished. Oh. So I had two that I was going back and forth between actually three. Um one was the very first time I was on a band trip and I ever ate at a restaurant that had cloth napkins. For some reason, I stole a cloth napkin and my mother found it and made me send it back with a letter of apology. <laughs> and I had and I had breakfast at that restaurant the other day, you know, and it reminded me of it. But um, and she remembered it because I asked her about. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, or or the time that I um, we we had a bake sale at school before the junior play. And my buddy and I got together, and instead of chocolate chips, we used chocolate x lax in the brownies that we made. Oh, my. Um, now, that is good. That is yeah. good. But the worst one, the absolute worst one that my mother still gets angry about when she – I mean, I'll be 55 uh, this year, and my mother still gets angry about it, was when um, five of my buddies and I were suspended from the basketball team because we mooned one of our teachers. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's the so, young man. I'm feeling really would, good right now. <laughs> that would be criminal behavior today. This was, of course, in the 80s, Absolutely. right? 84, something like that. But I mean, uh, like I was doing classic eight-year-old bullying. You can't come into the balls jumpy thing. You guys were like, eh. It's, I mean, it's, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's the kind of stuff where we probably would have been locked up. <laughs> right. Just to give you an For example, sure. my, my wife gave me a 50th surprise birthday party back five years ago of course four and a half years ago and she 
she framed, or I have actually have the laminated letter from the school superintendent, right, that's in a scrapbook, and she had it framed and was out on display because she had all memorabilia. My mother got angry again. I mean, she got mad all over again about that oh, situation. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, anyway. Eek. All right. Well, we're here to talk about innovation. So, innovation in healthcare, particularly, G, because that's where your background is, and that's how you and I came to know each other, was mm-hmm. uh, innovation when you were in that role at uh, at Baptist Health Systems. So, let's talk about what you do today. How do you spend your time today? Sure. Um, kind of in a variety of ways. I've got... Um, I'm functionally an, a consultant, but also a very active investor as well. So um, G2G Solutions is essentially just an LLC in which I do a lot of different functions. I still act as a strategy consultant for Baptist Health, uh, very actively involved in not only their investment activity, but also their strategic growth activity. So I still work with the management team in a pretty ongoing way. But I also work uh, strategically a lot with uh, venture funds, and I've got one significant private equity client in which I really help them look at what types of companies should they be targeting. uh, What's the next generation of private equity healthcare going to look like? Um, So I help them with the way that they evaluate, the way that they think about what their healthcare uh, investment strategy ought to look like. Um, and then I also work with, uh, kind of the ESO environment, which I'm excited about because, um, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. That's where I see a lot of, it's interesting. I see a lot of, uh, Jeff, you and I can relate to this to some extent too, because I think I've sent some of this your way. It's mm-hmm. a combination of like junk <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and some crazy things. You're like, you think you're going to do what? Yeah. But then you run into some people that, you know, are onto something. Um, and so I like to spend some time there, too, uh, especially because I feel like healthcare, especially with innovation, is so inaccessible. Healthcare is the last frontier in my mind. Maybe, maybe education, but healthcare mm-hmm. is amongst the last yeah. to really innovate and think about how to transform. And so it makes it really hard for innovators to access the system and understand the complexity of it. So I like to stay very involved with kind of where the rubber meets the road entrepreneurs trying to like create a path to help them understand the complexity of the space. So is there, are, are you focused in any particular area, digital health, therapeutics, diagnostics, or does it, is it? Yeah, so, well, the the larger answer is no, but yes. So from an investment perspective, we typically are looking in the more digital area. Uh, diagnostic is okay. There tends to be a little bit of a longer runway uh, with diagnostics, with med devices, that kind of thing. But from an investment perspective, digital telemedicine, data is where we've probably put most of our capital um, yeah. the last several years. Um, where it comes to when I when I spend my time on health system stuff or when I'm consulting with health services companies, typically it's, uh, it's like process oriented. How can we improve 
the way we understand our customers. And sometimes I'm able to bring in some of those digital solutions or think through, you know, how do they improve upon what they're trying to do? Hmm. Um, and then when on, if I'm working with like a real, um, a smaller entrepreneur, that can be kind of whatever. Like if it's an entrepreneur that's super early stage, you know, I, I'll take anyone on if you're right. smart, you know, yeah. and interesting to me, that kind of thing. What, what are some of the cool, what are some of the cooler things that you're seeing in terms of innovation that, that are going to be game changing that you can talk about? I know there may be some things you can't, but yeah. what, what's, what are you seeing that's, that's exciting at this point? There's a lot that I probably can't talk about specifically. I think though, um, if I would say the things to watch are the folks who really are, who stay closest to the patient. So as you guys probably know, and, and Jeff, you're a you know healthcare guy, especially uh, Jeff One's uh, standard. Um, <laughs> you're a healthcare guy too, so you know this, but uh, there is a, in my view, those who stay closest to the patient will win this game regardless. You've got a lot of activity. You've got data activity. Who's going to transform the way we take in information? But all of that fancy information, if it doesn't get to the place where the provision of care happens, it's kind of mute. Then you've got data that can transform operations. Same thing. If you don't understand healthcare operations and how they operate in the gazillion systems in which they're operating, that data is just another data point that sits out externally. So I, I think there's all of these fantastic things, but the ones that are winning, at least so far, are the ones that really hone in on how to engage a patient, how to improve an outcome, and just stay closest to the patient, which if you think about it philosophically, that is, you know, the essence of any really healthy business is staying closest to a customer, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in healthcare, you've got multiple customers. You've got uh, stakeholders that could be doctors or health systems or insurers and payers. So mm -hmm. that could be more complicated. But I am seeing that the companies that stay closest to the patient are the ones that are breaking through faster through the healthcare bureaucracy, because there's so much bureaucracy, it's so hard to be an effective healthcare entrepreneur. It just really is. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that over the next several years, that'll get easier, but honestly, it's tough. Hey folks, we'll be right back with the episode, but first we want to tell you about a limited opportunity to take advantage of our strategic growth diagnostic. For a short time only, we're offering a free strategy call to see whether or not our unique diagnostic tool is right for you. Go to innovationjunkie.com backslash diagnostic to learn more. So if you if you talk about there where, where we're winning or, or the companies that are winning in healthcare, let's go back and look at where you think you just mentioned all the stakeholders, health systems, you know, acute inpatient care, outpatient primary care, specialty care, payers, uh, et cetera. Where do you think we're between a rock and a hard place? Where do you think we need innovation the most in healthcare? Man, uh, I, I mean, if it were up to me, I'd just blow the whole damn thing up. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, is, it, is, it is in need of just a blow up. Um, it, it honestly, uh, Jeff, I'm not going to lie to you. It, I would say 
all of them needed equally because the the, the reality is, is with healthcare is that all of these pieces are so interdependent Mm -hmm. and interconnected and you can't innovate one without innovating on the other. So this is why I say, and it, and it makes the process so complicated for like innovators to understand. That's why I, I say those who stay closest to the patient, at least at this juncture, they are winning because that's the one thing, not a payer, not a provider, not a doctor, not a accountant can argue with, mm-hmm. right? Is if you, if you can, if you can create any mechanism that helps a health system or provider improve an outcome with a patient that is indisputable but everything else because there's so many stakeholders in this very complicated system it can get a little murky and difficult to innovate now it is very possible but you have to have a lot of guidance Mm -hmm. and that's honestly even why you know 15 years ago when i got into this healthcare stuff i was going i will tell you guys i was like going straight to especially since i had these connections and resources i was going straight to like stevens going oh my god you guys should invest in this and you should invest in this and i in the doctor that i was partnered up with um you know had those connections as well and no one wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole Mm. partly because they didn't understand it and the first thing the the second thing was too many stakeholders the interdependency of all of those stakeholders makes healthcare so difficult but i think that's going to change over time but what the landscape has shown now is that patient impact and outcome will still win so it's kind of like if you think about it in the retail game or any other game it's like uh you know and i'm sure you guys use like the lean canvas and all these other like primary like Mm -hmm. ways that you say do i understand my customer i'm telling you it, it, and I, in business school, this is all we focused on is uh, customer, customer, customer. Like if you don't yeah. learn anything, understand how to understand your customer. Those who just focus on that, at least at this juncture, are being successful in healthcare. And and that is you know, swimming upstream in healthcare, right? Because it it's it's Absolutely. it's generally been about the experts. It's been about the exactly. the physicians and the providers and and to some degree the payers, right? So. Absolutely. Gee, I'll give you one that's that's kind of interesting to your point. I think it highlights your point. So there's there was a company based in Oklahoma that was started by a GI specialist. And his whole premise was colonoscopies. Recently, I think there was a, it may have been an AMA recommendation that you should get start getting colonoscopies earlier, age 45. And it's a high rate of death. And a lot of times they don't catch until it's much later stage. He said part of the reason why there's apprehension for going in and getting colonoscopy is because the prep is so awful. It's an awful process. It makes a lot of people sick. So he's formulated, based on a lot of peer-reviewed research, food and a regimen that includes food that has the same impact as some of the harsher chemical preps that you'd have to take. And what he can show through the work that he's already done is people don't cancel because they're sick or not feeling well, and and they don't avoid the prep. So it's a better it's a better uh, patient experience. It's also better for the docs because they're making more money by virtue of the fact that people are actually showing up for these yeah. appointments. But I think that kind of speaks to it to, speaks to, to your to the thinking. Point. Yeah. Absolutely, that is a very um, I love companies like that because they it's like that's a part of the healthcare ecosystem that you can impact and you can touch. 
right? Yeah. I may have to uh, send you their pitch deck. <laughs> no, I would love that actually because, well, yeah, yeah I, I know I have two friends now who are avoiding colonoscopies for the reasons you said. So it's real, exactly. uh, but that's an out, but that's also, if I tell any entrepreneur who's like, man, I'm, I'm wanting to get into healthcare, I've got all these ideas. It's like, you've got to have enough sense to go, what can I actually impact? Yeah. But you can march into anybody's office and they would say, that makes sense. And they also have exactly. enough data to support that that fact is true. People do cancel because they hate the prep and that's easy. And so healthcare is a prime example of the innovation cycle with this thing will be 15 years, right? So we're at the beginning. So the tip of the sphere looks like, you know, it's, it, you know, we've got a, it's some underhanded softballs. It's stuff like this mm -hmm. that kind of keeps, keeps the door open though. So I love these. I, I love those types of opportunities to look at and introduce in because part of it is too, Jeff, to uh, culturally, <laughs> culturally bringing something from the outside in is also part of the innovation process. Right. Yeah. It's like I've got to I've got to get people accustomed to some of these ideas got to come from the outside. So if they're a little like, hey, these guys have got like a different innovation prep idea. That helps that it's like not too huge. You know what I mean? Well, that's you know, that's a prime example. We like to talk about our primary, secondary and tertiary stakeholders, primary being the end user. Uh, um, uh, secondary being the economic decision maker and tertiary being the influencers or saboteurs, right? And so right. if you think about this particular innovation, everyone wins. The payer everyone. wins, the provider wins, and the patient wins. I love that. I might have to steal that. That's exactly what I, I think, though, you need in early stage healthcare innovation is the kind of thought like that. Because you, so I run into so many people who actually do have the right idea, but I'm thinking, are, do you think you're the only person that knows how to do this? There's a reason it doesn't get disrupted, right? And mm -hmm. so it's like you kind of have to, to, to properly disrupt healthcare is going to require unique understanding. Yeah. That's good. That's good. A yeah, follow-up for you related to some of maybe the, the experience or what you've witnessed through the pandemic, it seems like the case for telehealth has probably been amplified over the course of the last year. What, what are you seeing and what are your thoughts about that? Um, well, I would say it, it, it it's a function of what perspective, right? So my, the case for telehealth has, for me has always been strong, but uh, mm -hmm. I came through the door thinking that way. But from the health system perspective, it was strong, but I have seen it weakened quite a bit since the uh, COVID numbers have started to go down. You start to see folks revert back to what they like. The challenge is we've seen the demographic shifts are becoming a little bit more hard to ignore. So meaning millennials are clearly like, would prefer to not step into anyone's clinic. Um, but before it was more like anecdotally, we couldn't necessarily prove that. And so the cool thing is now you can prove it and it, that it, it's forcing those who are responsible for the provision of care to think about the fact that they can't just service one model. And healthcare is 
uh, notorious for servicing one model. It's like mm -hmm. one size fits all, right? That's that's its biggest problem is a lack of segmentation ability, in in my view. Mm -hmm. So um, that is changing, but what has been a little discouraging is how quickly it reverted backwards. With that being said, when I put my investment hat on, it is probably the most active space going on right now. Uh, millennials clearly love it, and it's clearly efficient. Um, what we've learned, though, is that as the COVID uh, infection rate has reduced, so has the utilization of tele telehealth. And that tells us that tells us a lot, but it also tells us a lot more generationally because millennials have clearly continued to say, yeah, we prefer not to have to come into uh, any office for care or whatnot. So as we looked, so from an investment perspective, though, even though like healthcare uh, systems and health systems utilization of of telehealth technology is reducing, we don't see that from an investment side is something to worry about at all because mm -hmm. the investors are looking obviously towards the next generation and we're looking what's coming over the hill uh and that's kind of the difference in the two worlds that i live in it's kind of like health systems live in what i feel like there's always this conventional all like the things that are phasing out and then the more active investment world is like what's coming so it's it's always kind of I always feel like I have one foot in a canoe and one on land, but um, at, or one in a speedboat and one in a canoe. One in a, exactly. <laughs> uh, but but the but the telehealth but but the investment world is doubling down on telehealth technology, and it's not just in regular applicability. It's like how do we re-engineer this technology to do other things? And so uh, I would say at least in my personal investment fund company uh, that, that, that we personally oversee, telehealth investment is probably maybe 60%. Wow. And pre-pandemic, it was 20. So, so let, let's talk about the world of uh, data analytics, machine learning, natural language processing, AI, and, and what you're seeing there. I know you and I have some shared interest in that area as yeah. well. Yeah, man, that is super exciting. Um, my sense there, Jeff, is that it's still going to take a little while. So it's interesting. The project that we worked on together, uh, it's kind of reared its head again hmm. um, in, 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 in some different ways or whatnot. But the reality is there is, again, that's the difference between what the systems are ready to do, but what the investors are ready to do. Mm -hmm. The systems, the challenge is the systems are are responsible for the provision of care. So the machine learning and let's say in, in, in any project where you can produce new insight, you say, oh, my God, that's massively valuable, which it is. But in healthcare, unless you do something with it, how valuable mm -hmm. is it? Right. So this is the, the, the weird mismatch with healthcare is that uh, I think I, I've had a conversation with my private equity and guys over the years. I think there's this sense that we hate how slow traditional healthcare is, but at the same time, when we try to take off without them, it doesn't work. Yeah. because they are responsible for the provision of care. So we can go innovate all we want, 
But if we can't bring it together at the right time, we don't create the magic or the outcome that we're going for. So you've got the technology, the data, which is all we like to talk about and invest in. But we so what that's one of the reasons I keep my foot in one of those canoes or speedboats and one on land. It's like uh, I, because you have to bring the the people who deliver care along. Yeah, you know, um, we were just talking a few moments ago that and we were talking with it about it in the context of, of marketing, but it, it applies to healthcare as well as the technology, the availability of data and, and, and the capabilities that exist far surpass the ability of most marketers to implement them. And I think that's what you're no. saying, the same thing. The technology, the data, the machine learning and, and analysis capabilities and the talent to analyze data and to create decision support systems far exceeds uh, a healthcare system's ability to implement it on a, on a broad scale. And to, to add on to that, to implement it in the way that is economically feasible mm -hmm. and that makes sense. Right. I mean, these guys are completely crazy. They don't adopt a lot of this stuff because they're not incentivized to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, no, that's right. I, as an innovation executive in the health system, I was thinking, you know, good Lord, I'm like, great. I see all of this, you know, opportunity, right? But you know what? Truth be told, all my CEO and my management team saw was things they couldn't pay for. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, yeah. And, and so there is fundamentally, that's that blowing up reform thing that's happening. Now, it, and it's not just federal federal reform or, or regulatory, I do think that the, the, one of the things that's been great over the last several years is that the federal government has loosened up the space to be more creative when it comes to creating different payment models so that you can innovate because the payment model in healthcare is a fundamental reason there's not enough innovation. However, um, you also have to be a little bit incentivized to say, I'm going to blow this up and do this differently. And that is the risk that a lot of, you know, senior executives go, I don't know. Now, it's worked really well in places on the West Coast, Kaiser um, or Providence Health System, where literally these guys have just said, you know what, we're going to blow it up. We're going to put the patient at the center and we're going to design every process around it. Oh, and guess what? We think we're smart enough to manage the economics and they actually make more money than anyone. But they fundamentally blew up what they thought they knew. And they said, we're not going to try to hang. They didn't do the one foot in the canoe thing, the one foot in the other. They picked a side. And I think in healthcare, that's very hard for a lot of health systems to do. Um, for for good reason, um, in, in economic reasons primarily, but uh, that d but it does create unique challenges, you know. Mm -hmm. Very good, Jeff. You have any other questions? Yeah, yeah, you know I mean, the one the one that I was thinking about, kind of patient centered. So there was the promise, and has been the promise that EMRs, the Epics and the Cerners, and the PHRs that were eventually you were going to have this data that's readily available and the patient will be able to keep some of the data. And, and one of the hopes was that you would get this team collaboration where if you had multiple docs or, or care providers that all were working on a patient's case, it wouldn't be this thing that seems like it's like this a lot of times where no one really knows 
what the status is and who's doing what. Are you seeing that team collaboration across uh, across clinician functions starting to manifest because of the tools, or is it still a little bit of a traditional, we didn't get the paperwork, we don't know, fill all this stuff out again, we don't understand your case. What, what are you seeing? That's a very interesting question. Um, the, I don't know that the collaboration is actually become uh, because of the, the tools necessarily. Um, again, in healthcare, people behave and the system behave how it's incentivized to, especially financially. So um, recently, we we I've kind of introduced a new partnership with a, with a uh, it, with a joint venture with Baptist that kind of took a slightly different approach that it wasn't about the tools but it was about kind of basically this very same idea jeff it's like how do we integrate all of these like care positions i mean mm -hmm. you'll have one patient in like 10 providers mm -hmm. who can manage that so right. we integrated kind of the new so we've got this new relationship with the new co and what's fun interesting is that it's working beautifully without the technological uh, integration. The technological integration is proving to, again, probably to Jeff One's earlier point, far ex exceed where the market is and where the people are. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just it, the technology isn't actually doing the integration. It's more like we're having to, in, in healthcare, insert a different human element that exclusively mm -hmm. does that. But I think that's, again, very unique to healthcare. I, I, I pray that in 10 years, this conversation will sound so different. It's like mm. we would we would think that what we're doing now is like the Neanderthal times. But right now, it really is so difficult because of the, the payment infrastructure and the gazillion wow. stakeholders that kind of keep so much red tape involved that technology is not a, a silver bullet in healthcare. It's just not. And I think you can see some of that with, you know, the the Berkshire Hathaway breakup that recently happened and some of these really big West Coast tech companies who I know and advise and have spoken with and, you know, in, initially gave them my opinion that just coming in with technology is not the answer here. And they, they yeah. kind of learned that the hard way. Yeah, um, yeah it seems so like gonna... behavior, behavioral changes to break down the institutional and regulatory atrophy really need to happen. That's right. I'm going to land but the plane But you know what, here. Jeff? Oh, I'll ahead. say one more thing, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Jeff. Jeff being a, an organizational development and, like, human person, like, understanding how people work, and, and you've done this, you know, in your Axiom days, I think it's very similar, Jeff. It's, like, understanding how what motivates people. Yeah. And you can't just say – you've got to understand that some of this technology threatens folks. It yeah. threatens how they function. It threatens what they understand, you know, uh, threatens how they function or operate their business. In some cases, it's not all perceived as positive. And so I'm always keen on this notion of understand what you are replacing and who you are impacting in every way, both positive and negative. And that's one of the key components that I think a lot of the entrepreneurial community misses. And so they miss an opportunity to kind of engage some of the resistance. All the resistance isn't bad, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the resistance is good. You can engage that resistance in a very positive way, I think, if you understand where they're coming from. Yeah. 
Very good. Very good. We're talking with G. Dennis. G. is a healthcare innovator, investor, and strategist uh, or extraordinaire. Uh, really appreciate you for being with us today, G. You've given us lots of great things to think about and lots of great things for our listeners to consider as well. Thanks for having me, guys. This is the Innovation Junkies podcast, and we'll see you on the next episode. Hey, listeners, this is Jeff Amrine. We want to thank you for tuning in. We sincerely appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the Innovation Junkies podcast, please do us a huge favor. Click the subscribe button right now and leave us a review. It would mean the world to both of us. And don't forget to share us on social media.